We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible or navigate there on your device, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 10 through 17. The topic, the Apostle Paul pleads with the believers in Corinth to maintain unity and to quit dividing into factions over himself, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus. The title of our message, Come Together Right Now, Pleaded Me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I got a million of them. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our time thus far here worshiping you and sensing your presence. I, I don't know. I, I think about it all the time, Lord. I know it's, hopefully it doesn't get old when I say that you walk in our midst. But you said that, Lord, when you wrote to the churches in Revelation. You said you walked in the midst of the candlesticks, and the candlesticks were the churches. And so we know that you're omnipresent, but we also know that you love to be present in the church and the gatherings of your believers. And so I pray, Lord, that you would do way beyond and over and above all that we could ask or think this morning in terms of advancing our knowledge of the Bible and especially of you. And that we would walk out of here gracious, uh, oracles, Lord, ready to share Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Anastasia Davidova, Natalia Ishenko, Svetlana Romashina. You might think they are Natasha's sisters in the upcoming Black Widow film, but they are real Russian ladies who have won the most gold medals in their sport, five apiece. Their sport was originally known as water ballet. In 2017, its name was changed to artistic swimming. You probably still refer to it as synchronized swimming. I was fascinated by synchronized swimming when I was a youth. In my black and white television there in my living room, I would watch it and all the little feet above water. It was fantastic. I thought, who could do that? It's a hybrid form of swimming and dance and gymnastics. It consists of swimmers performing a synchronized routine of elaborate moves in the water accompanied by music. We use the idiom in sync or out of sync to mean working well or working badly. The believers in Corinth were definitely out of sync. In our text today, we'll see it said of them that there were contentions leading to divisions, and so they were out of sync with one another. To help them get back in sync, the Apostle Paul will emphasize the body of Jesus, and he does it in two ways. First, he'll talk about his mystery body on earth, the church. And then he'll talk about his physical body lifted up from the earth on the cross. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you are to perform as the body of Jesus on the earth. And number two, you are to preach that Jesus' body was lifted up from the earth. Let's take a look, first of all, about how we are to perform together as a body. The human body, one of the Apostle Paul's favorite illustrations for the proper performing of the church on earth. In chapter 12, he'll write... For as the human body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one, so also is Christ. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And so he saw us uh, working together, individual believers working together in sync the same way your human body is. One foot in front of the other, one hand, you know, uh, where it's supposed to be, the other, and, and all those kinds of things. So there's a coordinated movement. As we begin in verse 10, Paul's thinking about the church as a body. You don't see it at first, but it's there in his particular choice of words. It says in verse 10, 
Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul definitely had the body of Christ in mind because joined together is a medical term. It is, and I quote, used of knitting together bones that have been fractured or joining together a joint that has been dislocated. He was reminding the believers in Corinth that collectively they were like a body. In their case, it was a body that was dislocated and fractured. He mentions having the same mind. Obviously, a body requires a mind in order to move properly. Corinthians had a mind of their own, as we'll see. We're told as believers in Philippians to have the mind of Christ. He's our head. One way we have this mind is by submitting to his authority as the head of the body, letting him direct the body. And finally, this word judgment can be translated purpose. And so we are the body of Jesus on the earth, and with him as our head, we ought to perform the purpose or purposes that he desires and directs. And if you were listening in Corinth and you understood the words, you would know that Paul just said, but you're not doing that because you're fractured and dislocated, so you're not accomplishing your purpose. Instead, the church in Corinth was marked by divisions. Divisions in the earthly body of Jesus would be like your body suffering a dislocation or a fracture. At very least, under normal circumstances, it would halt any progress. If left untreated, it could be devastating. I've only broken one bone in my body. It was my ankle at the church picnic years ago. It wasn't my fault. I saved some poor kid. But anyway, uh, and you know what? I couldn't get up off the ground. It hurt. And uh, it dislocated body can't do very much except squirm and writhe. And some of you have had this situation. And so that's what Paul is saying. He says, yeah, you're, you're, you're like you're just a bunch of broken bones and fractures, and you need to come together. He says, verse 11, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that, uh, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Chloe seems to have been a well-to-do businesswoman in the city of Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus at the time. This is where he wrote to the Corinthians from. She undoubtedly was saved through his preaching of the gospel or through someone who he had uh, brought to Christ. Some of her household stewards, also believers, went on a business trip, and Corinth was one of their stops. While there, they visited with the church and attended a service or two. Think of how excited they must have been looking forward to the fellowship with believers in another town, especially Corinth. Uh, if you're a, a Christian, they're all baby Christians really at this time. If you're a Christian and you're on your way to Corinth, the most wicked, vile city in the empire, uh, it, it'd be great to know that you could hook up with other Christians that can tell you where to go and where not to go and just for the encouragement and those kinds of things. Hanging with the Corinthian Christians, however, was more of a bummer than a blessing. They witnessed contentions. They must also have witnessed many of the other terrible things occurring there, telling Paul all about it upon their return. I remember in elementary school, the lowest you could go, the absolute rock bottom you could sink to socially was to be called a tattletale. If you were a tattletale, that was it. You might as well switch schools and start all over again. But this isn't tattling. It, it's declared, it says. It's a legal term. It was something like a deposition. Paul used the term to divest their report from any hint of impropriety. Besides, what they reported was going on openly and publicly. But I like this sometimes over the years, you know, as I've had the opportunity 
uh, and the great joy of confronting people in their sin. Uh, and a lot of times they'll say, their first response to me is, how do you know that? You're not supposed to know that. And then I guess I'm supposed to say, you're right, let's forget about it because I'm in more sin than you are. Uh, and it just, it's kind of a weird human thing that happens. Or people call me, this happens all the time, all the time. People call me and say, so-and-so is in sin. I go, have you confronted them? No, of course not, that's your job. I said, okay, I'll do it, but I need to tell them you told me. No, you can't do that. You can't quote me. Hey, some nebulous person told me you're in sin. I guess I could fake it and say it was a word of knowledge. <laughs> or I could say, call me back anonymously and tell me the same thing. It's, it's ridiculous. And so, uh, you know, we, we need to be careful not to gossip and backbite and that kind of a thing. But something that's public and open. And Paul, they came back and they said, hey, you can't believe what's going on in Corinth. It was crazy. There were contentions. This is elsewhere called a work of the flesh. It means disputing rather than discussing. The best contemporary example I can give has to do with believers who are drawn to what has been called New Calvinism. Uh, some people call it hyper-Calvinism, but they don't call themselves that, uh, and so I don't want to do an injustice. Others in the movement itself label themselves young, restless, and reformed. The new Calvinists I'm talking about are usually your friends who have come under the influence of certain Bible teachers who rabidly promote what are commonly known as the five points of Calvinism as the only true biblical theology on the planet. Anyone who doesn't agree with them is more than just ignorant. They may be a heretic. All that they want to talk about is their doctrine, how right they are and how wrong you are. In essence, they expend all their energy trying to convert saints to their system rather than converting sinners to the Savior. Now, I know it's anecdotal, but I remember a guy here at our church 15 or so years ago got saved here and just on fire as an evangelist at his business out in the world. I mean, this guy shared Christ with everybody, handed out thousands of tracts. And then he started having lunch with a guy, a friend of his, who was into this hyper-Calvinism, this new Calvinism. And after a period of time, all this guy wanted to talk about was the five points of Calvinism, and all he did was try to convert saints to his system. He didn't do any evangelism anymore, uh, and, and so it had a really terrible effect on his life. He and his wife ended up leaving the church. It was disputing. I, I met with him, and I said, hey, I don't mind what you believe. You just can't teach that here because we don't believe that, and it offended him, and so they ended up leaving. Let me cut to the chase. It is disputing rather than discussing, and its contentions have led to unnecessary yet severe divisions. Gino and I could tell you about entire churches that have split, some Calvary chapels over this and others, and it's still going on. It's been, I've been dealing with this for maybe, maybe 20 years now, 15 or 20 years going back, and people are still getting drawn into this and causing division in the church. I'm not going to get into the doctrine except to say this one thing because you need to know it. One of their arguments is that there is no biblical, intelligent, scholarly alternative to their position. If you have never studied it for yourself, doesn't mean you're ignorant, but you maybe have never gotten into this topic, and so it sounds kind of convincing. The trouble is it's not true. New Calvinism is not the only theology in town, and it's not even a very good one. If you want to start really getting into systematic theologies, uh, it's not the place to go because eventually it does an injustice to the character of God 
And so if you ever, you, you, sooner or later, you're going to run into somebody, maybe you're already there. Uh, if you're the person that's trying to convert us to Calvinism, that ain't going to happen. Uh, we don't need the divisions. We're happy to have you here, uh, but let's discuss it, not dispute. Causing division is wrong. It's just as evil today as it was in the first century. There was a phrase back in verse 10 that you will all speak the same thing. It doesn't mean we'll always agree on everything. Unity does not require uniformity. It has more to do with the spirit of our interactions. Albert Barnes wrote, he said this, on the great and fundamental doctrines of Christianity, Christians may be agreed. On all points in which they differ, they may evince a good spirit. And on all subjects, they may express their sentiments in the language of the Bible and thus speak the same thing. Why can't we do that? One reason is because we elevate some doctrine or some position to an essential rather than a non-essential. It's not just New Calvinism. There are King James-only groups, groups that teach you must be baptized to be saved, or groups that teach you must speak in tongues either to be saved or as the evidence of the Holy Spirit or keeping the Sabbath. Uh, it goes on and on. To these groups, those things have become as important as the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can usually ferret out a person like that right away because you'll meet them and they'll say, you'll say, hey, are you a Christian? They'll say, yeah, I am. How are you baptized? Oh, uh, I don't know. Well, you might not have been baptized correctly, or have you been baptized? Or, hi, how you doing? I'm a Christian. Yeah, what Bible do you use? Is it the certain King James-only Bible that we use? Okay, I'm a Christian. Oh, really? Do you believe that regeneration precedes faith? I don't know what you're talking about. And so, you know, you can't really even rejoice with these people because they're, they're, all they can think about is their essential doctrine. We're to make disciples, not divisions. So keep that in mind. Secondly, you're to preach that Jesus' body was lifted up from the earth. Question we should have at this point, what is it we all agree on? Or we could put it this way, what should we all speak the same thing about? Well, Paul tells us in this section, it's the cross, verse 17, upon which Jesus was crucified, verse 13. Then later in the chapter, in verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified. In chapter 2, verse 1, we read, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul will fill out the cross in chapter 15, explaining what he believes the gospel to be, saying, Brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so Paul says, basically, I received the gospel, you received it from me and were born again, and this is what the kernel of it is. Jesus died and was buried and he rose again the third day, all according to the prediction of the scriptures as your substitute and savior. Jesus, referring to his death on the cross, said, when I am lifted up from the earth, not into heaven, but on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. And so the cross is that thing, that wonderful thing in history by which mankind can be saved. Theologian Roger Olson provides a baseline for belief. He says this, Christian must believe in the God of the biblical revelation, creator and sustainer of all that exists outside of himself, and that God became uniquely incarnate as Jesus Christ, fully God and fully human, crucified for our redemption and raised bodily for our new life, and that our only hope of salvation is in God's grace through Jesus Christ, accepted by faith. Now, you might think, well, that's not a lot. 
But as you read through that, and I'm not saying that's the only way of putting it, but as you read through that, you think, okay, some of these people can't even say that. We could all agree on that, but they would say, but wait a minute, you can't do that unless you're only using the King James Bible. Or where does it talk about baptism in there? Or keeping the Sabbath, because that's super important. And see, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. There's a lot that we agree on, the essentials. And there's always going to be a lot that we can discuss. We simply cannot afford contentions and divisions. By their very existence, they undermine lifting Jesus up on the cross. You can't be lifting the Lord up on the cross for others to see while you're disputing among yourselves. It's impossible. Verse 12, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. A long time ago in a sanctuary far, far away, Pam and I were visiting Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside. Greg Laurie, you know, is the pastor there. He came out after the worship and before the teaching and gently rebuked the church. I was all for it because I wasn't a member. <coughs> Apparently, whenever the believers knew beforehand that Greg would be out of town and one of the assistants would be teaching, attendance at church went down by half. Kind of means people were only coming to do what? Hear Greg, not meet with Jesus. Point well taken. On the other hand, do you have a favorite Bible teacher? <laughs> I do, and I think he's the same guy. But anyway... Either somebody that you like to listen to or read. There are guys I'd rather listen to or read more than others. I mean, they, you connect with certain people a little bit more than others. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. I don't think this is what Paul meant. At least, I don't think that's all that he meant. Guys weren't just saying, well, I like to listen to Paul or I like to listen to this guy. I mean, it was more than that. Commentators really don't know the extent of it. There's not much told about why these factions existed. But if it was anything like it is today, most likely these groups were appealing to these guys based on their own behavior. They were looking at these guys and saying, these guys could defend what I'm doing. Let me give you some examples. And again, this is just speculation, but I think it, it probably makes sense and it will to you. Paul was known for and criticized for his emphasis on God's superabounding grace. He emphasized it so much that in one place he made sure he explained that we shouldn't sin just so that grace might abound. In other words, Paul would talk about grace so much that people might come to the conclusion that if God's grace is superabounding, then I should just sin like crazy so that it would super, superabound in my life. Now, later in this letter, we're going to see some of the believers celebrating sexual sin as if it was causing grace to abound. So who knows, maybe they thought it was the very kind of thing Paul would like that they could say, look, we're, we have a guy here who's committing incest with his father's wife. Look at the grace of God. Paul said, yeah, kick him out. And we'll get to that, but it's interesting. Paulus is described in the Bible as eloquent and mighty in the scriptures. Interesting, that was all before he understood and was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was teaching one day, and two tent makers, a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, heard him preach, and they could tell that he didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. And so they taught him about it, and he went on and was an even greater preacher from that point on. But uh, a big problem Paul's going to face in this letter is the preference the Corinthians have for man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. It could be, I'm not saying Apollos was doing this, but it could be people saw him as kind of a crossover guy, 
a guy that obviously had had the world's wisdom while he was over here teaching, and now he's got God's spirit, and you put those things together. And we are always trying to do that from the world into the church. The, the great example in our contemporary age would be uh, psychology. And so the Bible tells us we have an onboard counselor. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the counselor and the comforter. He's, a, he's not only a counselor, he's a good counselor. He makes you feel better about yourself. And so he lives within us. You have access to him 24-7. And if that's not enough, he has the word of God to work through, which the Bible says discerns between your soul and your spirit. And so if you need counseling, you've got the Holy Spirit and the sword of the Spirit doing spiritual surgery on you, man, go for it. Make your own appointment. So then guys come along, Christian guys, and they say, yeah, but we think God gave wisdom to Freud too and to Carl Jung and to B.F. Skinner and to Abraham Maslow. And we know that none of those guys agree with each other even, but each one of them said something that we like. So we're going to pull that in and piece it together with the Bible and we'll have man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Now, it's hard to say to people, you don't need that stuff because it hurts people. They say, well, what do you mean? I, I'm, I'm in therapy right now and I, I, it's doing me good. That's between you and the Lord. I'm telling you from the pulpit what you have as advantages in your life and to be careful of things that are not Christian. I studied psychology. I know I'm way out of tune and way out of date. I don't know what they're doing lately, but I can tell you from my remembrance that none of the things I studied have anything to do with biblical Christianity, and there's no way to bridge that over into it. Carl Jung, for example, famous psychologist, he admitted he talked to a spirit being. Do you think it was an angel? No, it was a demon. Dave Hunt used to call him the demon Philemon because that was his name. And so I'm a Christian. I've got the Holy Spirit on board. I've got the word of God. And now I've got Philemon to help me. What more could be, what, what could go wrong, right? And, and so that might be a, a, the Apollos group. Cephas is another name for the apostle Peter. Uh, Peter had a tendency to hold on to Jewish traditions. Got him into trouble when he visited the church in Antioch, you might recall. At first, when he arrived, he ate meals with Gentile believers. He was eating bacon and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But when some Jews came, Peter separated himself from the Gentiles. He'd take his tray and go over to the Jew line and just have matzah and falafel and things like that. And Paul rebuked him publicly, the Bible says. I had to get up and rebuke him. Man, I would have loved to have been there for that. Two giants in the New Testament first century, and Paul just with the boldness of the Holy Spirit saying, what are you doing eating only with the Jews all of a sudden? You're causing division. Now, we're pretty sure Peter visited Corinth because later in the letter, they'll talk about Peter a little bit. It's at least plausible, either by his influence or ignorant of his influence, or without his personal influence, that some of the Jews who were at the church in Corinth uh, were influenced to become more Judaizers than Christians. And so those are groups. What about the I Am of Christ, folks? It's about 54 AD. There were still lots of people alive who had seen Jesus before his death on the cross in the 30s. It's possible there were those in Corinth who could say they had seen him and heard him. They, I could see people saying, hey, Sermon on the Mount, I was there. Olivet Discourse, <laughs> super. And you know, I can imagine if you had heard Jesus in the first century, that it'd be easy for you to say, 
I don't need to listen to anybody else because I heard all I need to hear from the lips of the Lord himself. This kind of happens in a way today uh, in, with believers who refuse to attend church because they can worship Jesus everywhere. And so they do worship him everywhere, but in the one place where they're commanded to worship him, in the gatherings of his people. It's always struck me as funny. I, I can worship anywhere. I don't need the church. Even though Jesus said I should go to church and worship him there, I don't need to because I can worship him anywhere. It's circular reasoning. And so they don't need teachers they, because they have Christ. And so again, a lot of this is my speculation, but I think it makes sense. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, Christ isn't divided. And since believers are his body, divisions are wrong. The other two statements about Paul being crucified or baptized in his name show more of the seriousness of divisions. They give the impression believers are following a mere man and not the Savior. Whether it's New Calvinism or King James only or any of these other things, the adherents who contend with you are in fact minimizing the cross of Jesus Christ and they are keeping non-believers from their Savior. They don't think they are because they think that their non-essential doctrine is super important, but they are. Paul had additional things he wanted to say about baptism. It was something they were confused about. We'll see later in the letter he talks more about it. He deals with some idea of baptism for the dead. For now, he drops the truth that water baptism is expected, but not essential for salvation. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. So this really ought to put to rest once and for all any argument that a believer must be baptized in order to be truly saved. No matter how you try to twist Paul's spirit-inspired words, he was saying that baptism does not save and it's not a necessary component of salvation. If it was, he would mention it. So why get baptized? Well, Jesus said to. You're familiar with a bucket list, right? I hate the terminology, but it's stuff that you want to do before you die. But maybe you have a Christian list of some kind. I couldn't think of a name for it, but maybe one of you can. And, and you've got a list of things that you want to do to please the Lord. Way down on the bottom of the list is live a holy life because that's so hard, right? I mean, be ye holy as he is holy, and you're like always trying to check that and realizing that you can't. Well, number one on that list could be get baptized because the Lord said get baptized. Hey, I, I'm done. Done with that. Now I can move on to the next thing. It's easy, and the Lord said to do it. That's why you do it. When you get water baptized, you give an outward physical representation of the inward spiritual transformation that Jesus has wrought in you. Jesus died, was in the grave, rose from the dead. We identify him in that death by going under the water, then in his resurrection by coming out of the water. If you're still sure water baptism isn't part of the formula for getting saved, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. On one level, it was just smart pastoring to not perform many baptisms. It kept folks from boasting. Pam and I were baptized in the pool at Calvary Chapel's Twin Peaks Conference Center Easter time, cold, woo. We assumed that the senior pastor would do it, but it ended up getting dunked by the assistant. But you know what? It didn't matter, and it doesn't matter. Any believer can perform a baptism. The only credential necessary is that both the baptizer and the baptizee be born again. This idea that only a pastor, an ordained minister, an elder, a deacon, or some other designated individual can baptize you, it's just not from the New Testament. Uh, and it elevates baptism to more of a ritual than a personal thing. And so any of you, if you're saved and you know somebody who needs to be baptized, I mean, we do baptisms here because it's kind of cool. 
and everybody gets to enjoy it. But you can be baptized anytime by any believer. I've done plenty of pool baptisms. This also solves a problem. I, I know I'm, I'm sometimes disliked, hurts my feelings, because we have decided not to baptize children who are under 12 years old. That's a personal thing with me because I baptized so many kids who didn't know what was going on. They could repeat what was going on because they had learned a catechism. And it just reminded me of being in Catholic church. Not so much baptism because I was a baby when they did that and I don't remember very much except being scared and wearing a girl's dress. <laughs> it's caused a lot of problems for me over the years, that christening dress, they call it, or christening garment, I guess. It's... I might have gender issues over that, but anyway. Confirmation, I learned all the responses, and they said if the bishop calls on you, he'll only ask these questions, and these are the answers. I didn't know. I barely knew who Jesus Christ was as a historical figure, let alone my Savior. So this solves it. If you are mad because we won't baptize your 10-year-old, they can be saved. I'm not saying kids can be saved at the youngest possible age. You know, that's fine. I just feel uncomfortable because I'd rather them make the decision and know what they're doing. Baptize them. If you feel that strongly about it, use, find somebody that has a pool and you baptize your own kids. What a blessing that will be. And so don't get caught up in this who baptized me kind of a thing. And just my personal advice, don't go somewhere and get baptized by someone famous. That's weird. If you've been baptized and you're on some kind of a trip and it's, oh, that, hey, would you re-baptize me? What happened on your trip? I got baptized by so-and-so. Wow. Can I touch you? I, I wondered why you were glistening like you were still wet. The only rebaptism you might seek is if you were water baptized sometime in your life before you were a believer. Because if that happened, you just got wet. You weren't making any kind of a declaration. Paul was in Corinth 18 months. Does anybody think that he only had one evangelistic sermon and taught nothing else? That would be absurd. In the book of Acts, we're told that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, persuading both Jews and Greeks. After getting booted out of the synagogue, we read he continued there a year and six months teaching the Word of God. Paul reasoned and taught, but always kept the cross of Jesus central to his messages. The gospel, that is the death and resurrection of Jesus, was present in his talks or the foundation of them. This last phrase in verse 17 about wisdom actually introduces the remaining verses of the chapter, so we'll look at them next time. Now, during a synchronized swimming routine, the judges don't get to see everything. Each judge bases his or her score on what they see above the surface from where they're sitting. They don't see what's going on below the surface, only the results above. Out of sync below affects what is seen above. You know something went wrong underwater if on top they're out of sync. The world looks upon the church, us, and they see what is visible. If we have contentions internally, it will result in divisions, and when sinners see that, they do not see the cross. That's Paul's whole point, is, is that when there are divisions, dislocations, contentions, you might think otherwise, but I'm telling you that people cannot see the cross because it's obvious the cross is having no effect on anyone's life. Jesus humbled himself and died on the cross, and we are arguing over which version of the Bible to use. There's no humility in it. It's all pride and vanity. 
There's a famous saying that nicely summarizes all this for us. In fact, I could have just got up and said this, and we would have been done. It's always attributed to Augustine. Its true origin turns out much later, 17th century, a minister named Rupertus Meldenius. Probably people don't want to pronounce his name, and so that's why Augustine, that sounds easier. But anyway, 17th century, and you've heard it before. Here's how it goes. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Good motto for the church to live by.